Well, it's good to see everyone again today. It's always encouraging when I have had the opportunity to speak and the next session people actually come back. So that's all. I'm starting out with an encouragement. And I want to kind of pick up on some things we talked about a little bit last night about just beginning with the Great Commission and what our task really is in the world today, how we're doing uh, with that Great Commission that we received 2,000 years ago. So we just begin by thinking about some of the realities of the status of world evangelization. And to repeat what I said last night, we have had the Great Commission for 2,000 years, and yet a third of the people on the planet haven't heard the gospel, and they don't have access to churches and missionaries and people to preach the word faithfully. And there are over 2 billion people like that. And for all of these years, you think about the fact that that many people, and they live in a, over half of the people groups. Now, we estimate there are about 11,600 people groups. But the U.S. Center for World Mission counts 27,000 people groups. The Joshua Project has a different number. And everybody's numbers change all the time. And it's not because they're looking behind a tree nobody looked behind before. But as we study people groups, we realize, you know, we thought that was a people group. Turned out, that's really two different people groups. Are those three over there in that part of the country? Really, that's just one people group. So they're always changing, and that's as it should be. But what is not as it should be is the fact that half of those people groups still don't have a viable church and the teaching of the gospel that would be honoring to Christ in obedience to the great commission that he gave us. In the United States, we have a trained Christian worker for every 235 people. Outside the United States, that drops to one trained Christian worker for every 450,000 people. 85% of the pastors in the world have no theological education, no pastoral training, and they have no access to it. They're marginalized people. They don't speak the dominant culture's language. They live out in the countryside. They don't have city skills that could support them in the cities where the seminaries and the Bible colleges are located. Maybe they've never learned how to read and write. Maybe they've never gone to elementary school where they could move on to high school and then eventually get into a training program. And yet God has called them to be pastors. They're serving out in the various places of the world. And some folks say, brother, you're a seminary professor. We're sending you our students. Train them and send them out. 95% of all evangelical graduates in the United States, 95% of all the people who walk across the stage and get that little diploma stay in the United States. And I love the United States. I've been a citizen here for a long time. But only 5% of the world's people live in the United States. 95% of the people live elsewhere. So we have it exactly backwards. Now, I'm not playing the role of the Holy Spirit in saying who should live where, but you got to wonder when over 80% of the pastors in the U.S. serve within 200 miles of their wife's mama, who's calling whom? You know, you have to think about that. With the great needs around the world and so many people get their education and stay right where they grew up, while so many people around the world have no training at all and have never even heard the gospel. Are we really hearing this call that we're talking about this weekend? Are we really hearing it? And as we're talking about piercing the darkness, how are we going to do that if we never move beyond our comfort zones? In 2004, I was in a meeting in Thailand, one of these Lausanne meetings, and I ran into one of my old college professors there. 
And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm in this conference. And he said, what's the thing? And he said, well, we're, I said, we're, we're discussing how we can get the gospel into the cultures that are what we call primary oral learners. They don't read and write, so they don't process information in a linear, sequential, syllogistic kind of format like we do. That's not how they learn information, and that's certainly not how they can remember it and pass it on to others. And so we were talking about the best ways to really reach those kinds of groups. And very tongue-in-cheek, he said, you mean you guys haven't gotten the gospel to all the cultures of the world yet? And I said, no, of course not. And he said, you know, what you need to do is figure out how businessmen can make a profit doing that. He said, we'd have the world reach in a short period of time. And we kind of laughed for a moment, and, and then I kind of winced because I thought, he's exactly right. Because in 1896, in the city of Atlanta, there was a guy in his laboratory mixing together this stuff, water and sugar and flavoring and coloring, and he came up with the stuff you're supposed to drink, called it Coca-Cola. But he didn't do very well that first year because it cost him $70 to make it, and he only sold $50 worth. And in 1896, a $20 loss was a pretty big hit. But he stayed with it, stayed faithful. A few years later, this guy from Vicksburg, Mississippi, who had a candy store, a guy named Beatenhorn, figured out how to put it in bottles with tops on it so you could take it away from the soda fountain. It began to do a little bit better. And we'll cut to the chase since we only have a few hours this morning. We'll go ahead and go to the end of the story. Here we are in the year 2017. And the Coca-Cola logo and the product itself is known by over 95% of the people in the world. In 121 years, we can do it for profit. But in 2,000 years, we haven't done it for the glory of Christ and in obedience to his great commission. We get to travel around the world doing what I do. I get to go regularly. Mary and I were in Thailand and in India uh, not that many months ago. I... I get to go places. I get to speak places, and I get to go to some fairly remote places in what I do, taking teams, preaching, teaching, whatever. And I've been in places where there are no churches, there are no missionaries, there is no pastor. They don't have a Bible. They don't have a Jesus film. But there will be a little store, and it will have a Coca-Cola sign nailed up on the side of it. A few years ago, I was in Ecuador. We went out to the jungle as far as you can drive to a place called Coca. We left the, car, the truck there. And we got into a dugout canoe, several missionaries and myself, and we headed out toward the Peruvian border, going out through the jungle three days. We made it to the border. We did whatever we were supposed to do out there. We were beginning to make our way back. And the first night, we stopped in this little village, and the people said, look, we have a, a laguna, a lake out in the jungle. It's a pretty good hike, about six hours out. But if you want to go, only our people can fish there, but it's filled with piranha and stuff like that. You can go there and fish. And I thought, cool, so let's go. So we all started hiking. And it was such a thick jungle. The canopy, broad daylight, bright sunshine above the canopy. But it was like twilight down on the jungle floor. And we're, we're walking out through there. And every once in a while, these monkeys would run across the canopy above us. It was just amazing. It was like the Garden of Eden. We were, I, I thought we were in places that that maybe no other white person's foot had ever been before as we stepped on each part of the trail going out there. We got six hours out. We got to this laguna, and there was another little bitty dugout canoe we had to get in to go across this lake, which I was a little nervous about because there was more of us than that dugout canoe could really handle, and I knew the place was filled with piranha. But here we're going anyway, so we're getting in that, trying to be real careful. And I looked over. And underneath the bush, there was a Coke can. And I thought, how does that happen? It's everywhere. 
The gospel's not. But Coca-Cola is. We can do it for profit. If, if we really wanted to, we could get the gospel to the places where they desperately need to hear. You know, unfortunately, in a lot of the places where we have gone, people received the gospel message. They raised their hand, and the missionary said, wonderful. The preacher, the church planter, whatever, said, wonderful. And he moved on, and the people took the little bit that they had heard about the gospel, and now they have to perpetuate Christianity. But how can they do that? Because they've never been discipled. They've never been trained. There is no exegete among them. There's no one who has studied the Bible, theology, history of the church, anything like that. And so when someone comes to the leader tomorrow and says, I had a, a crop failure. Why did that happen? Or this young girl in the next village suddenly died. Why did that happen? I don't know is never the right answer. So they reach back to what they have always believed and practiced, and they pull that forward, and they add the little bit of Christianity they know to it, and we have one religion added to another religion, and a third one comes out. That's neither the first nor the second. In fact, when the French Catholic missionaries in Haiti were bringing in the West African slaves to take care of the sugar plantations and do all the work, with these sharp pointy things called swords, they were demanding that the people accept Catholicism. And here were these African slaves who had their own religions from back in West Africa, but now they're on these sugar plantations with these French Catholic missionaries around them demanding that they accept the authority of the Pope and that they pray to the Virgin and that they be good Catholics. And so basically they put on a Catholic shirt. Everything inside was still the same. When you take West African animism and you put it in a blender and then you put French Catholicism on top of that and you push puree for about 30 seconds, what pours out is voodoo. Voodoo is a perfect illustration of a syncretism. And if you've ever seen a documentary on voodoo, what you know they do is they will offer sacrifices of animals. They will have these ceremonies out at cemeteries. They pray to the virgin. They include rosaries. They have crucifixes. And they pray to demons, and then at the end, they bless it all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's just all one conglomeration, but it's not salvific New Testament Christianity. But they got a cross on top of their building, and they meet once a week. So we think they're okay, and we go on to the next town now looking for a place where we can establish a church. And sometimes the churches we do establish look just like the ones we knew back home. But it's not anything that the people could do. They can't replicate that kind of work. We, we talked a little bit last night about Jim Elliott, and some of you may know that story because of uh, they, some of those guys were from this area of the country. Right after that happened, eventually, you know, Elizabeth and her daughter Valerie and Rachel, Nate's sister, get to go into the Warani community, and they eventually are able to reach them, and a church is established, and some churches from the states went down and helped build a church for them, a church building. And to this day... That is still the church. What they built is not anything the indigenous people could replicate. They, and they're thinking, if this is a church, then this will always be the church because we could never do this. We're not to be church transplanters. We're to be church planters. We're to put the pure seed of the gospel in the target soil of the countries where we go and teach them New Testament Christianity so that they can understand it and replicate it for the people who come after them. Jesus didn't tell us, go ye therefore and get decisions of all men. 
Although we must get decisions from men, we must lead them in prayers, but that's not where it stops. What did he say do? Go and make disciples of all the nations. And even tells us, teaching them to observe, to obey everything that I have commanded you. And that teaching aspect is really what our ministry, Reaching and Teaching International Ministries, that's what we're trying to emphasize. In fact, the, the newest book I have back there, Hearts, Heads, and Hands, is really the curriculum that we use to try to train people. And Lifeway Publishers asked me if I would write it up so they could publish it in many languages. They're, we have it in several now, and they're translating more this year. Um, because they said around the world, people want to know how can we train people in discipleship, everything you need to, to be, to be pleasing to the Lord, and then the head knowledge of everything you need to know, and then the hands knowledge of what kinds of things you should do as a Christian. And so those heads, hearts, and hands components are put in there. And the reason that they asked me to write it up is because that's what we were doing. That's what reaching and teaching does. We take people just like yourself, and we go around the world, and we train pastors and leaders. And people think, oh, my soul, I could never train a pastor. That's, I don't have that kind of, listen, think jail ministry. That's where these guys are. They, they don't have advanced degrees. Many of them can't read or write, but they are serving churches. And that common thread of the need for training is what really kind of drove us to do that kind of ministry. When we were serving with the Quechua people in the Andes, I first went as a church planner, but I was doing, asking questions, basically doing research, asking them, what is your greatest need in this community? How can we serve you? And when they found out I was there to plant churches, they said, brother, please don't start any more churches down here. And I said, why not? You need lots of churches. Years before, I won't rehearse the history, you're welcome, but years before there had been a sort of an awakening of sorts. And now they had a lot of people who thought they were Christians, claimed to be evangelicals, and there were very few churches to go around. And they said, but don't start anymore. And I said, why? And they said, of the churches that we have, a pastor will serve eight, 10, and 12 churches. He is the only pastor. He's like the Christian Google in his community, but he's never been trained. They said, what we need is trained leadership. What we need are some guys who could come down here and teach our men what they are to believe, what they are to teach us in our churches. To give you a couple of for instances, we've gathered these guys together in all the places where we go to serve, and they will be the only pastor in a region of the country. And they're, pat they're serving several churches. One guy that was pastor of two different churches asked, his question in our class was, uh, when was Jesus saved, though? Was that before or after the resurrection? Which prompted a question of another guy of, what was that lady's name that saved and baptized Jesus? One guy in Africa asked a friend of mine, he had been a pastor for seven years, by the way, when I eat the flesh of another man, do I get his sins too? And you think, okay, let's back up. These guys are not anywhere near where they need to be. Of course not. And so you want to blame them. You should not be thinking that kind of way. But a friend of mine, one of my national believer friends in South America told me, he said, brother, you can't judge these guys. It's like judging a carpenter because he doesn't know how to do brain surgery. We've never trained these people. We've never taught them how to rightly divide the word. They were the tallest, good-looking, well-spoken kind of person, and we threw the keys and said, you be in charge. I'm going to plant the gospel in the next village. 
And so now we, and hopefully you, will have a passion for going back into those kinds of places and helping to entrench, to teach the people what they need to know. There used to be a professor at one of our seminaries in, in Fort Worth, Southwestern Seminary, a guy named Justice Anderson. He had been a missionary for a number of years in Argentina before he went to serve there at Southwestern. But he used to say, when your church growth outstrips your trained leadership, you're in trouble. And that's where we are in a lot of places around the world, not because we've never preached the gospel there. I tell my students in conferences where I go, most of you will never go to a place where they've never even heard Jesus' name. They may have their understanding of what that is, but if they've never been discipled and, uh, and trained to understand what the Bible really teaches, then what you, what you wind up with that passes as Christian is not evangelical Christian. I was in Nazca, uh, Peru, out in the desert. If you've ever seen the Nazca Lines and one of those documentaries or whatever, it was that area. And all these church planners and pastors had come together for this training, and the people... Uh, this one little lady named Fortunata, she was there because the church in her village met in her home. So she was invited to be a part of the whole thing too. And as I'm talking, I don't even remember what I was talking about, but she said, she interrupted me. She said, brother, can I go to heaven when I die too? And I was kind of confused by the question and someone else could tell I was a little confused and she explained. She goes, oh, she doesn't know how to read. So I'm still a little confused. And someone else said, well, We've always been told if you can't read and write, you can't go to heaven when you die. And so with great joy, I'm explaining that your literacy level has nothing to do with being saved. But the sadder part is the pastors were kind of leaning forward to hear the right answer to the question. No one had ever told these people you have to read and write to go to heaven. But the missionaries who had first come into that area knew they weren't going to stay. They wouldn't be able to stay long term. So they thought what we'll do is we'll include some literacy classes along with our new members' baptism classes. And then when we leave, they'll be able to read the Bible themselves and they'll be able to be disciple. So the people naturally assumed if you've got to pass this class to get baptized to be a full member of the church and this class includes literacy, that must be a requirement from God. And it was something that they automatically assumed that had never been corrected. In another community a few years ago, we were telling Bible stories chronologically to help evangelize a particular area. And one pastor of one of the few churches in that part of the Andes said we could meet in his church that evening and he would help us gather people there. He had glasses. He had a Bible. Fairly well-dressed guy for indigenous pastor and seemed like one of the brighter lights in the harbor, and he was just standing up against the wall, kind of smiling as we were telling our stories. Well, that night, one of the stories we treated was the Exodus story. And he, he was just so excited, beaming from ear to ear. He said, I love that story. He said, that's our people. That, that's like our history. He said, I, I, the whole Exodus story, he was just amazed. He said, I've never heard that story before. And I thought, how can you be the pastor of a church? How can you even interpret a lot of the New Testament if you never have even heard of the Exodus story? I was in Cuba uh, riding across the island with one of my students from Havana. We were going out down to Cienfuegos on the bottom part of the island. And as we're going down, you know, if you, if you know Cuba, just wide open fields of sugar cane, just going across the island, beautiful country. But as we're, we're riding along, I would look at, and every once in a while I'd see a town back on the other side of these, this, these fields, and I would say, Alexis, is there like a Baptist church in that town? Is there an evangelical church in that town? 
He'd say, no, brother, there's not one in that town. So I didn't really say anything. I just got to thinking, you know, because if, once that bone gets in your head, it doesn't get out. So I was just been thinking about that village. And I, then I saw another one. I said, what about over there, brother? Is there a church over there? He said, no, there's not one there either. And I just happened to say, well, you know, well, maybe one of our students one day will go to one of those places and plant a church. And he looked at me like I'd lost my mind. He said, brother, we could go over there right now and start a church if you want to. He said, Cuba's wide open. He said, they, we can go start a church. And now it's my turn to look a little funny. And he explained, he said, here in Cuba, there is so much uh, heresy and so, much, um, so many cults and new religions coming in. He said, we don't think it's right to start a church if we don't have a trained leader there to lead the people. He said, they fall into error too easily. He said, we're trying to move slow but we're trying to go deep as well as broad in the places where we go. And I thought um, a lot of my friends, a lot of people that I know could take a lesson from them to realize we don't just want to go broad and cover the land as quickly as possible. We also want to go deep. So as I traveled and I began to notice this trend around the world and it began to weigh on me, we just started taking people to train pastors and leaders. You don't have to be a pastor. Anybody that really wants to get deeper knowledge in God's Word, that's who we were training. And it kind of developed into the ministry that we have now. But as I go around the world, a lot of times sitting in these uh, airport lounges or in an airport somewhere, I see these businessmen, uh, government people, and they were like uh, research and development department people. And, you know, multinational corporations have a research department. And one of the things that they're doing is they're trying to figure out what are the trends in the world? What's going on here? What is a, a possible need that might be developing here so that they can make money off of it? They want to be the first domino in line when it gets tipped so that they can make the most money first. That's what they want to do. Governments do research as well because they want to know when a crisis is developing. This river has been poisoned. That one is drying up. We're going to have... Um, major health crises in this part of the country. So they began to put things in place and get ready for it. And I began to notice that pattern, and I began to think about so many headaches that I am asked to consult for because we in missions tend to be reactive instead of proactive. We're constantly running around putting out fires. And in the far deep south, they say it's hard to remember when you're up to your armpits and alligators that your original objective was to drain the swamp that's kind of how we are as missionaries. We go to the field with this passion to win the world and plant churches and train, but we get so busy being reactive that we never have the chance to sit down and think about how could we do this better? In fact, some of our mission programs are, look a lot like those churches that have a phenomenal program, a great church program for the 1950s, but it doesn't work today. The world has changed and they haven't. And so with a lot of our mission efforts around the world. So I wrote this book called uh, Changing World, Unchanging Mission because I began to notice some trends and I thought there's some missiological implications here that if our churches in the states that are sending out missionaries and our missionaries that are going out, if we would keep these things in mind, we would be more effective in the places where the Lord lets us go. So I want to run through a few of those this morning just to kind of let you know what's going on in the world. And these trends or changes that have really impacted us have kind of gone on over like the past couple of decades or they're happening right now 
or we can look and see these things are just about to take place. How can we be ready when the domino falls? What would be a good thing for us as a church or as a mission force to be aware of? One of the things that I've noticed around evangelical Christianity is what I'm, I term in the book competing missions. And I'm calling it competing missions because there are a lot of people who aren't really in agreement about what the church is to be doing in the world today. What is the mission of the church? Some people uh, are very involved with doing um, international adoption, adopting kids from other countries. Our church does that. That's a wonderful thing to do. But is that the Great Commission? And, and if we only do that, have we set aside the core of the Great Commission to do something that is good to do, but it's not necessarily the proclamation of the gospel? And that, that's just an example. There are a lot of different ideas about what really we should be doing. Back in the 1970s, there began to be some concern on the part of people like John Stott that we were beginning to just do social ministries and we were setting aside preaching the gospel. So he wrote a book to address that. And it kind of got us thinking, okay, we, okay, we got to get back proclaiming the gospel again. And then in the 80s, there was another issue of it. And so this guy named David Hesselgrave wrote another book to address it again. Most recently, a couple of guys, uh, named Greg Gilbert and Kevin DeYoung, wrote another book asking the question, what is the mission of the church? You would think we've asked and answered that question enough. We would know that we are to do the Great Commission. Yes, we are to minister to needs of people. Yes, we are to heal the sick. We are to feed the hungry. We are to give a cup of cold water to people that need it. You know that every single day, every day, 26,000 children on average die of starvation and hunger-related diseases. I don't know if you've ever had to bury, by God's grace, not our own, but we have had to bury children that died of what I call stupid stuff. These kids did not have to die. And it's not that there's not enough food in the world. There's a corruption sin problem in the world that keeps the food from going where every day 6,000 people die because they don't have clean drinking water. Every day. So I'm not saying we don't need to care about those things. Jesus cared about those things. But we can never set aside the proclamation of the gospel to do just these things. Neither can we forget about these things to just proclaim the gospel. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the mission of the church? And that's one of the things that we need to get addressed. There's a major trend going on in the world right now where agencies that are receiving the donations from evangelical churches to do missions are not necessarily doing what that church thinks missions ought to be. Another major thing going on in our world today, and I'm going to do these very quickly if you'd like to read more about them. Some of them are most, well, all of these are in that book back there and in greater depth. And I'd be glad to talk with any of you, Facebook, Twitter, email, text, call me, come see me. Uh, I'd love to address these things greater if, if you want. I keep thinking about them and I have to talk and write about them. But one of the things that's a real challenge for us in missions is the globalization of the world. And you think, well, that should be easy because we're more and more one big village where we're all interconnected. You call the 800 number on the back of your credit card, somebody in India answers the phone. I mean, it's just one big world now. We had this translator on one of our teams in Lima in Peru a few years ago. When I went back the next year, I asked the missionary, I said, is Claudia going to help us again this year? He said, oh, no, Claudia's not working with us anymore. She works for 911. I said, Claudia moved to the U.S.? He said, No. I said, I didn't know you had 911 here in Lima. He said, we don't. 
And he saw, I was confused. He said, oh, he said, well, here's what happens. He said, she goes to this building and she goes in. She's perfectly bilingual. She sits at this console and there's a map of XYZ city in New Jersey before her. And she's got this headphone dealy. And when somebody in XYZ New Jersey has a fire in their kitchen, they call 911 and it says for Spanish push two. And she answers the phone in Lima, Peru. Can I help you? The 911 for XYZ city. And she says, these people say, well, I've got a house fire in my kitchen, and she knows she's been trained. She knows all the right questions. Is anybody hurt? Is everybody out of the house? Is it contained? Da, da, da. Hold the phone, ma'am. She pushes the phone. She pushes another button, and the fire department in XYZ City, New Jersey, answers the phone and says 911, and she says, hi, this is a Spanish operator. I got a lady on the phone. She's on Oak Street. She's got a kitchen fire, and she's in Lima. I mean, if that doesn't keep you up at night, it ought to make you at least a little worried when you think at night how... I mean, I read about two British surgeons in London who did an operation on a patient that was in another country, and they did it by internet and, and robotic surgery. That one really bothers me. But when you begin to think about how we are so interconnected, on the one hand, it's a great blessing, but it brings about a lot of challenges as well. Another aspect of the globalization is the urbanization of the world. Most of the countries where I go, between a third and a half of the population of that country lives in the capital city. The UN told us three years ago that for the first time in the history of this planet, we're more urban than rural. And you know the problems, the challenges that cities have, but one of the things that cities have is also is the uh, high-rise apartments with the guards downstairs. Missionaries, traditionally, always, we had our hardest time, our least fruit in the big cities. If I go to a village, there's one language to learn, one kind of food to get used to, one rhythm of life, one set of gatekeepers to meet and make friends with, and there's one aspect of missions that I can kind of adjust to, translate the Bible for these guys, learn how to do church well for these guys. But when I'm living in the big city, in Manhattan, they speak over 800 languages every day. It's like Pentecost in reverse. Every time you get on the subway, you're guessing who's speaking what. And I'm the church planter in this one big city block. Imagine, I've got to people down here from Beijing, those people from Italy, those people from Puerto Rico, those people are from Brazil, those people from Nigeria, and they've all been here differing amounts of time. Some came here as immigrants. They want to be here and they want to learn the language, but some came as refugees. They don't want to be here. I have a friend who was in Cuba at that time. They had been there for 40 years. They came to Georgia, from Cuba, when, Ca when Castro took over and his grandmother had lived there in Georgia for 40 years, she still did not know one word of English. Didn't want to learn English. Her face was set like Flint on Havana waiting for Castro to shuffle off this mortal coil so she could go back to Cuba and pick up where she left off, which, of course, would never happen. But there are people of all those different mosaic pieces in one city block in the big city and now we're becoming more and more urban all the time. Another issue that we have to think about today, and this I would just challenge you as a church, as you send out missionaries, especially counseling young missionary candidates to think about, uh, and it's there are things that we're having to question that we don't have any policies for. For instance, one of the, and I'll just put this under the category of travel and communication. I was talking, in fact, one of uh, my aunt and uncle's colleagues, I was talking with a guy named uh, Avery Willis, who's with the Lord now, but we were at a meeting in um, one of the orality kind of meetings, and he was saying, yeah, he said, you know, when, 
when my generation and before he said all these people went out to the field, we went on ships. And I, I remember being in the First Baptist Church there in Panama City and Panama through the canal where I was looking in the guest book at all these well-known famous missionaries that had come through the canal zone, but they stayed there because the ship would offload freight and have to wait for more freight and things like that. And so you had to spend a few days in little cities or in little places along, little ports along the way, and it may be weeks before you get to the field. The first day, you're really sad because you said goodbye to granny at the dock. You're crying. You're, oh, no, I'll never see my mom and dad again, that kind of thing. The next day, getting, getting a little bit, you're a little bit more encouraged. The next day, you're going back to your Bible studies. You're remembering your, your call, what God, how God stirred my heart. But you're processing all that. By the time you get to the field, you're a missionary. Go mish. You're ready to do it, right? But now... As you go through TSA security, you mouth to your mom, I'll text you when we land. And a few hours later, you land and you text mom, okay, well, missionary's about to pick me up. I guess I won't talk to you for weeks, but I'm here. And the missionary picks you up and he goes, hey, we're going to run by Burger King on the way to the, to the house. If you, you, and you think, okay, cool. So you go by Burger King, you go to his house, and he goes, look, here's the Wi-Fi code. And that phone over there, that's a Vonage phone. It works just like a phone in the States. You can call your mom. It's free if you want to call and you think that's amazing. So you do that and you think, well, I mean, I'll post on my Facebook, let everybody know I got here. You get on the internet and a friend pops in and says, hey, is that you? And you say, yeah, I made it here. And you update your Facebook. And you decide you'll read a couple of blogs or maybe tweet something. And several unintended hours later, it's time to go to bed. And the next day, you try to learn a little bit of the language, but it's so discouraging that you go back to your room and you just watch reruns of The Office or whatever your favorite old show was, and you just, you just stay on the Internet. And you never actually get into the new culture because you don't leave the old one. You've got this 10,000-mile umbilical cord called the Internet that keeps you from being able to totally engage in the new culture, to learn the language, learn the make friends, learn the food, learn the music, learn the sense of humor. You don't ever actually, actually have to do that because... You're still in your old world. I spoke at Master's College a few years ago, and we were talking about that. They said, when we send out our summer teams, they go for six weeks. And when our summer teams go out, they're not allowed to take any device. They take a paper Bible. They can take a legal pad or their, their moleskin or whatever and a pen, but no iPhones, no iPads, no computers, no nothing, because we want them for those six weeks in the culture, meeting the people. And so mission agencies sometimes will now ask me, what kind of parameters should we put on our missionaries? Should we tell them they cannot have any internet access whatsoever? Many of them have to stay in touch with their supporters and their, their prayer team. They have to, and as a, a parent and grandparent of missionaries, I, I certainly want them to be in touch with me. But I understand there needs to be a balance. What is that balance? We have to think about that and not just expect every missionary to police themselves out of their own maturity. The missionary life has totally changed. When we first went to the field, it took two weeks for a letter to get back to the States. And if whoever we wrote, the home office or my mom, they, if they sat down right then and wrote us a letter, it took two weeks to get back. So if you have a question, it would take a month to find out the answer to it. I was speaking at a, a language school, uh, Spiritual Emphasis Week, a couple of years ago, and the young lady told me that she talks to her mom by phone eight or ten times a day. And I looked kind of shocked, and she said, why not? I did that when I was in the States. Why don't I do it here? It's a free call. 
And I just began to think about it. And another girl said, well, I used to go to my mom's house on whatever night it comes on, and I would watch American Idol. We would sit there on the couch. That would be our visiting time, but we watched that show. And we would talk about the contestants and people like that. She said, but we miss each other. And so now our time every week is we call each other on the phone, and I'm at my house there in the language school country. She's back home, and we watch the program. She's on her cable. I'm on my cable, and we're on the phone. And we just do that every week. And when we wanted to call home for like Mother's Day, you go to the phone company downtown, you give them the phone number, and then you sit out in what is like the DMV waiting for them to call your name. And finally, they, you think you heard your name and you run and everybody crams into this little cabin and you're screaming over static for $12 a minute. And then halfway through the first sentence, you know, you get cut off, but you leave feeling good because we made contact with people back home. And now they, so what is the balance? How do we do that? We have to think about that now. We never had to really think about things like that in the past. Another thing that's really changing missions for churches is short-term missions. Now, some missiologists have referred to the amateurization of missions with people going out on short-term teams because a lot of people who don't know the language or the culture or the worldview or anything like that, they're going out. And some of them really want to do missions and they really want to make an impact. And some just want to be vacationaries. You know, they want to go and see, well, we were going to do a prayer walking trip in Vietnam this year. Next year, we're going to Sri Lanka. And there's no ongoing ministry and there's no real preparation. There's no orientation to provide them the necessary guidance. There's no field leadership for them. And there's no debriefing when they get back. And that's not always the best use of short-term teams. I'm all about short-term teams. We send out over 60 a year. My wife and I were both called to missions through short-term experiences. They can be done very well, but we have to think about that. Some people say, well, no, you just need to give that money to career missionaries. Well, the, that money doesn't exist. If somebody says, we're going to go to Thailand for a 10-day prayer walking trip or a one-week prayer walking trip, we're going to take 10 people, and it's going to cost each one of them $3,000. Others will say, that's poor stewardship. Send that $30,000 to the mission field. $30,000 doesn't exist until each one of those missionaries raise their support from friends and family and the money comes together and then they get to go. And short-term missions can be the best uh, missions education program you can imagine for the team members. It, but if they're done well, I remember reading Elizabeth Elliot, even back in her day in the early 50s before she even married Jim. And she would talk about the summer workers is what they call them. Summer workers would come down to to Ecuador and work with the Tzachila indigenous peoples and things like that. And she said of them, she said, some are workers and some are not, you know. And so you kind of figure out uh, that you get your, your money's worth out of some folks a little more than you do with others. But we have to think about what short-term missions is really doing. And what kind of numbers are we talking about, though? I mean, is that really a big deal to think about? In the 1980s, we had a program in our denominational quarters where we were really seeking to get volunteers to the field. And they wanted to get at least 100,000 out a year, 100,000 short-term missionaries going out a year by the end of the decade or something like that. They closed the department down because before the decade was out, they had far surpassed that number. Today, from the United States, evangelical church members like yourselves, we send out between one and a half and three million people every year. And you say, that's a pretty broad range. And that, because that depends on whether you count Everybody that goes more than one time, if you count them twice or just once. 
But you think about that many plane tickets are being bought every year. About 3 million evangelicals are going to the field. Think about all the money that's going into missions. We need to harness that and do it well. And local churches need to think strategically, working with your missionaries that are on the field and not telling them, hey, we're going to come in August and we're bringing 18 high school uh, seniors. Rather, you need to say, what would be a good time for you for us to come? Could, is there something we could do to help you that works into your ministry? And what would be the best kinds of team members to bring to be a part of your ministry there? Let, let them have a major role in guiding what you're going to do there on the field. I've already mentioned uh, orality and primary oral learners, but that is a big deal. The, the primary orality um, and even secondary orality, that's people in the United States who can read, but they just don't read. If you can take a book you've never seen before, a, a good book, like one of those on the table back there, you take a book you've never seen before and you can read it or, or an article in the newspaper and follow the argument that you're reading and close the book and think about it for a minute and then write a one-paragraph response. If you can do that, you are one of every five people on the planet. Most of the people in the world cannot do that. Prior, during the days that Jesus was walking around the Sea of Galilee, anthropologists and sociologists tell us that 93% of the world was oral learner people. Only the senators and the scribes and the Pharisees, people like that, were highly literate kinds of people. Even at the time of the Reformation, 1517, which this year we're celebrating 500 years of that, by the way, even at the time of the Reformation, 90% of Europe was still oral culture. But something had just happened that revolutionized the world. In 1455, this guy named Johann Gutenberg invented this printing press with movable type so that where it would have taken two years to hand copy and illuminate one of those Bibles, now you can print Bibles, liturgies, masses, sermons, arguments. That's why when Martin Luther nails up his 95 theses in Wittenberg, he's not the first guy to have those ideas. Remember, John Huss had been burned at the stake for those same kinds of ideas. John Huss was one of his heroes. Martin Luther discovered John Huss's writings in the library really informed his thinking. But when Martin Luther nailed up his 95 theses, what was available at that time was this printing press for the rapid dissemination of news. It would be like posting your 95 theses on your blog today. And that began to go forward. The Gutenberg Press had the same impact on the world of the day as the Internet has had on ours. And Al Gore was not even born yet. This was way before the Internet. But the Gutenberg Press has impacted Christianity more than any others because we want to know how to read the Bible. Everywhere we started a church, we started a school. And as a friend of mine used to say, Christianity since Gutenberg has walked on literate feet, so much so that Fortunata in Peru was wondering if she could even go to heaven if she didn't know how to read. It's hard for some of us to imagine that you could become a believer without being able to read. Certainly that you could grow as a disciple without being able to read. Or that you could serve as a pastor without being able to read. And most of the people in the world cannot or do not read. Here in these United States, 50% of the adults are what we call functionally illiterate. Non-literate, pre-literate, pick your prefix, but they don't read. 
I was speaking in two different states here, and this happened in two different states, and I won't name them because I'm not throwing rocks at anybody, but guys came up to me at both of those conferences, two different occasions, but this was the same story. Brother, I have a master's degree from, and they named the, the university, and he said, I have never read a book in my life, and I said, how did you do that? He said, I pay attention in class. I listen to what the teacher says. I ask her what's going to be on the test. He said, I can read. I'll get the book from somebody who had the class before, and I might flip through and see what's highlighted. I might look at their notes, but I, I don't read. I've never read a book. I'm not trying to encourage any young people to not read. I'm simply saying people survive, and they're what we call functionally illiterate. They live their life as if they do not read at all. That's where most of the world is today. Another thing that we have to think about, I'll just mention the rest of these very quickly, um, how can we help people without really hurting them in the long run? I, I'm a pastor and, or I'm a missionary uh, church planter in this village. And there are 10 villages that each one of them takes me two or three days to get to and two or three days, of course, to come back home. So I travel out to village A and I serve for a day and then I start making my way back. I'm out of, I'm, I'm out of my house for a week. I've been away from my wife and kids for a week. And all I did was go to village A and spend one day with the people. Then the next week, I head off to village B, village C, et cetera. And I do all these 10 villages. And then it dawns on me, wait a minute. These guys make on average about $100 a month in their jobs. Why don't I pick out one of the really sharp, brighter lights in the harbor, sharper tools in the shed in these different villages, and I'll begin to disciple and train them and let them be the church workers. And I'll say, look, instead of working in your job, let me give you your salary, and you be the missionary. You be the pastor here because I've got $1,000 in ministry money, let's say, that I'll spend on that every month. And it sounds so smart, but I will never be able to move beyond these 10 cities. That will always, unless I raise a lot more money, and the problem is I can never quit paying these guys, ever. That never has a happy ending. How do you do that? Well, I'm only gonna pay you I'm going to pay you the full amount this year. Next year, I'm going to pay you a little bit less, a little bit less the next year. That never works out. That has never. In fact, in one country that I know of in South America, all the pastors banded together and sued the mission agency for not making their payments anymore after about the third year because their churches had never picked up the other. One guy, when we were talking about how to do that, he said, well, let's think about it. What's the best way to cut the tail off a dog? I mean, do you just do a little bit at a time? or It's hard. Once you start that, how do we help them without hurting them in the long run. Questions, another question that we have to ask. Churches serving as sending agencies. Some mission agencies don't go in the area where you have people who want to go. And so the church says, well, we'll just send them. And so you, you provide the income or you provide the channel for the income to get to them and you send them off to the field. But there's a coup. There's a fender bender. They're thrown in jail. Something bad happens to one of the family members. They maybe they're taken how do, you, how do you meet their needs? So churches are the sending entities of missionaries. No agency sends a missionary biblically. But mission agencies facilitate the sending of missionaries. So you are the sending entity as the church, but a mission agency that serves in that country that kind of knows the ropes and has a support team there would best facilitate that. And I'm not saying that churches should never, ever be the sending agency, or I would be saying that the church in Syria and Antioch was not uh, biblically correct. 
But I do think we would be wise to consider what might be an avenue of sending this person. Other trends that are going on in the world today are that, for instance, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, countries close every year. For a number of years, it averaged three countries a year. But countries close every year their doors to traditional missionaries. So we have to think, how can we get into those countries? What creative access platform might allow us to get in there to serve? And so people came up with a lot of creative things. I know what, I'll be a computer consultant. I'll put on my visa form that I come, I'm a computer consultant. And I'll go there and I'll, I'll rent a little office space and I'll put up my plaque and get me some business cards made that say I'm a computer consultant. The only downside is I don't actually have a computer or know how to turn one on, but I'm going to call myself that. By the time the people find out I'm not really a computer consultant, that won't matter because they'll be believers now, and they'll say, that's all right, we're glad you came. And what we found out is that's not true. People leave the faith. They feel lied to. They feel targeted. It's like if you get married, and on your wedding night, your significant other says, oh, look, by the way, those people at the wedding, that's not my family. This is not really my name. And you're like, oh, that's okay. We're married now. No, you're like, well, what else have you lied to me about? Who are you? And so we realize that if we're going to have creative access platforms, and we must to get into these places, you know, Brother Andrew, you remember the guys who used to smuggle the Bibles into the Soviet Union back during the Cold War? One time he was going to one of the closed countries, and he told the guy that was, said, brother, you can't go there. That's a closed country. He said, there is no such thing as a closed country to someone who doesn't care if they come back out again. He said, God didn't call me to come out. He's called me to go in. Well, we can be creative about it these days because there are skills that many of you have that countries would love to have. Maybe it's English as a second language. Maybe you know agricultural technology. Maybe you are a business person and you could bring those kinds of skills that they need. They want that. And that would give you an opportunity. I have a friend who's a senior landscape architect in the Arabian Peninsula and he's been doing that for a number of years. That is his legitimate credentials, and he does that skill there for them. You have that in some cases. And the church has seen now a high value for that, and mission agencies are making ways for people like you to get to the field. You need to think about how can I best serve. Certainly, we think about changing governments today. The number of governments that are adopting Sharia law as official law, maybe they operated by it through the years, the, the Muslim law, the way of the path that would be officially how you must live as a Muslim. But now the governments are even, Brunei, places that you wouldn't expect are officially adopting that harsh legal system and that is giving uh, a major difficulty, as you can imagine, to evangelicals around the world. Just the changing governments and not necessarily just for uh, Islam. You look into Latin America and you see how leftist Latin America has become, and some countries in Latin America are closing their doors to traditional missionaries. In one case, many of you may know New Tribes Mission. They were the largest mission agency in Venezuela doing Bible translation, doing phenomenal work deep in the jungle, some of the hardest work to be done. And because of some unfortunate comment made by a U.S. televangelist, the next day, the president at the time, with the stroke of a pen, kicked that mission agency out of his country. That can happen increasingly in countries that are hostile to the U.S. I mentioned the Panama Canal a little while ago, and in the Panama Canal, 
I mean, it was really fun. I got to open the locks and everything. It was really, we got this little special tour. But the guy was telling us that we maintain, even though we gave that back to Panama, we maintain the Panama Canal control in time of war. He said, because it's absolutely necessary for our national interest that we have an open canal if we ever need it. And we have the only canal for any ship that needs to go back and forth into our area until very soon because the Chinese are putting a canal across Nicaragua now. Iran has given money to the very needy countries like Venezuela, where they are bringing in, of course, the he who pays the piper calls the tune. When I was in Cuba last, they asked me, brother, what you plan to teach on? We're asking you to set that aside. We want you to teach on Islam this, this week. And I said, why? And they said, oh, Islam is really growing here. They're coming here, going to our medical schools. They bring money. They're marrying our girls. They are very persuasive, and Islam is, is growing unbelievably. In Cuba, what we often thought was an isolated little place. And then finally, the, and the last thing that, that I would really encourage you to think about, and this one may be counterintuitive for you, uh, but this is reality. There has been an inexorable shift of the center of gravity not just of evangelical Christianity, economics, political power, many things, but of, specifically for our purposes, evangelical Christianity, the center of gravity for, it, for that is now in what we call the global south. We, during the Cold War days, we called the U.S. and her allies the first world. The communist bloc countries and their allies, all of them, they were the second world. Everybody else was the third world. And then after a few years, people said, wait a minute, there's more of them than there are of us. So folks started calling them the two-thirds world. And then eventually we adopted the term the majority world. But today, if you read like the Economist magazine, different kinds of uh, business journals, government um, literature, you'll recognize the term global south. It has nothing to do with the Mason-Dixon line. It has talking about Latin America, Africa, and a lot of Asia. The church down there is called the Southern Church. There are more Christians in the Southern Church than in Europe and the United States combined. The largest churches in the world right now are in the Global South. They send more missionaries than we send. And you might think, praise the Lord, this is wonderful. We now sit in the shadow of our younger big brother. But the problem is, going back to where we started with all this, we never did thorough training, deep discipleship, pastoral education, so that a lot of that what passes for evangelical Christianity is confused. In another, another situation where in two different places I heard the same story. One was the Dominican Republic. Another one was in Cochabamba, Bolivia. Same Situation. Let me just tell you one of their stories. Cochabamba, the Baptist leaders where I was working at that time, came up to me and they said, Brother, how can we better train our missionaries? We're beginning to send out missionaries. We just sent our first one last year. I said, that's wonderful. They said, yeah, it was really phenomenal. Great girl. She went to Egypt. I said, that's really good. They said, yeah, it is. But after a few months, she wrote a letter back, said, thanks for believing in me, sending me the support and sending me to Egypt. But please don't send any more money. It wouldn't be right to take it because I've converted to Islam. And in both cases that had happened, and in both cases, they sent them back to their home countries 
to be now Muslim missionaries because they knew the language, they knew the network of relationships, they knew the culture, they knew everything. They could fit in much more quickly. I got off the plane in Panama City. I was walking through the airport and all these women in burqas and got, I, I asked the missionary, I said, what is this about? And he said, what? I said, all these ladies in burqas. He said, oh, you know, I don't even see it anymore. He said, they're everywhere here. He said, this week they're having a big com uh, uh, convention-like gathering of multiple countries. People are sending representatives at this big conference where they're training Muslims how to evangelize Christians. So here in the Americas, uh, we have influence of the global south in ways that we don't normally think about. When we think about the church has now gotten to be so big in the global south, this is a wonderful thing. But it's not a wonderful thing if what represents Christianity is not New Testament Christianity. This guy named Philip Jenkins wrote this book. Let me give you one quote. It's, called, it's from the book called the Next, Chris, the Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity. He says, already today, the largest Christian communities on the planet are to be found in Africa and Latin America. He said, if we want to visualize a typical, and what he means is just in sheer numbers, if you want to visualize a typical contemporary Christian, we should think of a woman living in a village in Nigeria or in a Brazilian favela, which is a slum. What we think of as Christianity, our cradle, Europe, is now less than 1% evangelical. There are parts of Paris where Parisians are not allowed to come. African immigrants have come in from North Africa and have brought in Islam that is a... Uh, a militant Islam that does not welcome even the people who are the host citizens. If we're not training people in the truth, in the scriptures, the day is going to come, if it's not already upon us, when those who will represent Christianity won't be representing what Christianity is supposed to teach. We never taught it. But we have a window right now. And the, the beautiful thing is, you know, some places you have to convince people that you really need to be trained before they're willing to be trained. The people around the world where I go, they say, brother, come and teach us. Come and train us. Reaching and teaching, we have about 200 invitations right now we just can't say yes to. We just need people to help us go and to train. But there are people around the world who know they don't know and they want to be taught. What we as North Americans still bring to the missions table is sound evangelical Christianity. And that's what they're begging for. They know we don't have the money we used to have. They know we don't have the numbers we used to have. They know we don't have the strength and missions we used to have. But what we do have is what they want, sound evangelical training. And they're pleading for it. And I'm simply trying to tell as many people as I can that we have an open window and an opportunity to take the gospel and to train others and to obey Christ. What is the chief end of every one of us? The chief end of man is what? To enjoy God and to glorify him. So if we're to glorify him, how, do, how can we do that? How, how, how can you glorify God? I remember when I was pastoring, I'll close with this. When I was pastoring, my kids were, oh, my soul, they were like, four and seven, or three and six, around in there. And I was teaching one night in my church, and we were talking about one of those psalms where, where um, you know, trees are 
glorifying God and the nature claps its hands and all of that kind of thing. And I asked the church, I said, how does nature do that? I mean, what is, what is it to glorify God? How can you glorify God? And folks were saying, well, you know, it's like, you know, you can, and nobody could really articulate what is it to glorify God, right? They couldn't really get their idea across. And I just, we all kind of smiled because we couldn't really say exactly what that is, but we're driving home. And my kids were sitting in the back seat, and I thought, this would be a good time to rehearse our, our catechisms. And so I asked them, I said, who made you? And they said, God made me. I said, what else did God make? God made me in all things. Why did God make you in all things? God made me in all things for his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. The greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. By loving him and doing what he commands. How, what has he commanded? He has commanded, go and make disciples of all the people groups. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. That's the Great Commission. That's our marching orders. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege to be a part of what you're doing in the world. Lord, I don't know the role that you have for every person here, but I know if they are a believer, you have a role for them. We are all either goers or we are senders or we are both. But if we are neither, we are in sin. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us repentance and that you would grant us a heart that longs to serve you and the nation's for the extension of your kingdom and glory to Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.